Well, you're welcome. Welcome. Uh, we gather tonight in a spirit of celebration, uh, the celebration of many things. Over 100 years ago, the Irish poet Gerard Manley Hopkins must have been thinking of a day like today when he wrote, nothing is so beautiful as spring. When weeds in wheels shoot long and lovely and lush. So join me tonight to celebrate wondrous things. To paraphrase Peter Fallon, the world is ablaze with thanks to the maker. Spring is gifting us with poetry in the air all around us. And it is here in the room with us tonight. For this we owe thanks, of course, to our two guest poets. But we also owe a special thanks to Charles and Monica Heimbold, who are also here with us tonight. Ten years ago, the Charles A. Heimbold Chair in Irish Studies was inaugurated. Its mission to invite the best of Irish writers to be with us in residence for the spring semester of each academic year. So spring and Irish poetry go hand in hand for us here. The first holder of the Heimbold chair was Peter Fallon. And nearly 10 years ago to the day, it was April 4th, 2000. In the same room, Peter joined with Seamus Heaney for the inaugural Heimbold reading. In the intervening 10 years, Villanova, and in particular the Irish Studies Program, has hosted what reads like an honor roll of Irish writers in residence as holders of the Charles Heimbold Chair. Nula Nigonel, Eamon Grennan, Marina Carr, Michael Cody, Vona Gwork, Connor O'Callaghan, <clears throat> Sebastian Barry, Claire Keegan, Jerry Daw, and this semester poet John McAuliffe. We have been blessed indeed. So thank you, Charles and Monica. Your gift has enriched us all and will continue to do so. Please rise. I'm also grateful to Peter Fallon and Seamus Heaney for their advice and support over these past 10 years and for their friendship over many more years. It means a great deal to me personally and to my wife, Kath, to have them back with us again. It is indeed spring, a time to celebrate many wondrous things. Tonight's reading is also the culmination of a special undergraduate English course each semester, the literary festival course is designed around the works of five or six writers. The students in that class not only read the author's work, they also meet with the writers for discussion. Two students from this semester's course have been asked to introduce each of tonight's poets. <clears throat> My notes are mixed up again. <laughs> Excuse me. Christina Riley and Neve Cloughley will introduce Peter Fallon. And then Chelsea Woods and Samantha Ronan will introduce Seamus Heaney. We appreciate your understanding that there will be no opportunity for book signings this evening. So let us celebrate spring, the joys of Irish literature, and 10 years of the Heimbold Chair 
of Irish studies with some poetry. Samantha, tell some. Christina and me. Peter Fallon, Villanova University's inaugural Heimboldt Professor of Irish Studies in 2000, was born in Germany and grew up on his uncle's farm near Kells in the County Meath. He founded Ireland's foremost literary publishing house, the Gallery Press, at the age of 18. The press, which has published more than 400 books by Irish authors, including many of the most important contemporary Irish poets, is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Fallon is the author of six books of poetry, most recently, News of the World, Selected and New Poems, and The Company of Horses. Poems full of transformative raw and tender honesty in which everyday labor and evocations of the pastoral feel like rediscovering life. He's also the translator of the Georgics of Virgil and with Derek Mahan, edited the anthology of the Penguin Book of Contemporary Irish Poetry. He's included in the Field Day Anthology of Irish Writing, 550 AD to the present. He has given more than 200 readings at universities and colleges across the U.S. and in more than a dozen countries. Peter Fallon received the O'Shaughnessy Poetry Award from the Irish American Cultural Institute. And this citation, when the history of Irish poetry in the late 20th century comes to be written, the name of Peter Fallon is sure to turn up everywhere. Villanova University conferred upon him an honorary doctorate in 2000. And in 2003, he was elected to Ashtana, the association which honors an outstanding contribution to the arts in Ireland. The poet Wendell Berry, whom Fallon cites as a major influence, says of Peter Fallon's poems that they are wholehearted and readable as a good tale. His characters and voices are deftly shaped within their moments of revelation. Firmly rooted in, co in community concern and domestic scenes, Fallon's poetry is a melange of both sacred and the profane aspects of agriculture and the pastoral. His work goes beyond the particular and speaks to people of all backgrounds, while remaining strongly linked to the local with which he is familiar. With his clear poetic voice, Fallon describes the rich landscapes of Ireland, the people who live in these landscapes, and the work which brings the two together. An essential poet, he has also operated Gallery Press since founding the publishing house 40 years ago this year. Through Gallery Press, Fallon has been involved in the careers of such Irish writers as Derek Mann, Nuala Nagonal, Paul Muldoon, Seamus Heaney, Brian Friel, and this year's Heimbold Chair, John McAuliffe. Seamus Heaney has said of Peter Fallon's work that his way of saying has become a way of seeing. Eye to eye with griefs and crises he is emotionally well able for. I admire his single combination of gravity, obliquity, and tenderness. Peter Fallon's language is as exquisite as the landscape from which it is born. The lyric quality of his work echoes the rich poetic tradition of which he is an invaluable part. We are so grateful to have Peter Fallon with us here tonight. Please help me in welcoming him.
I could have listened to more of that, I must say. <laughs> it is a pleasure to be back here again and to read again with uh, Seamus. As Jim mentioned, uh, 10 years ago, we had this privilege. Um, and I remember thinking with some surprise that for all the years of our friendship up to that, and the fact that we had often introduced each other in the United States and in London and in Ireland, we had never actually read together before that day. And shortly after the reading, I was driving away from here and I pulled in to get petrol in the Shell place at the end of campus and went in to pay. And there was this moment of uh, clear half recognition by the woman that I was to give the money to. And I could see her thinking, I know that person from somewhere. Uh, and uh, immediately, my breast started to swell with the notion that my poems had touched her life in some way. <laughs> and then she said, it was a poetry reading, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, that's right. Certain by this stage that my poems had become beacons by which she would conduct the rest of her days. <laughs> and then she said, you're Seamus Heaney, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, that's right. <laughs> but as Henry James said, we're not here to enjoy ourselves. So. <laughs> Then go beyond the reach of road, lane, beaten path, or set of single prints, deep into the realm of stillness. There you bear the sores and sorrows of a neighbor, the illness of a friend. There a rock pool convalesces at once after a spill of rain. Look out where landfall coalesces with the sea's sheet iron and see yourself for that split second before the wind's blade shreds the mirror of the bay. Nothing has stalled that sound the length of time. On any day, in any weather, those shards and shatters glisten. The morning is telling you your life. Listen. This is the title poem uh, of the book Christina and Neve referred to in the introduction, The Company of Horses. It begins with wild horses, it moves to sport horses, and it ends with a horse from Irish legend. The company of horses. They are flesh on the bones of the wind, going full gallop, the loan of freedom. But the company of broken horses is a quiet blessing, just to walk in the paddock, to stand by their stall. Left to their own devices, 
They graze or doze, huck to fetlock, crooked at ease or head to tail, nibble withers, hips and flanks. They fit themselves flat to the ground. They roll. But the mere sound or smell of us, and they're all neighs and nickerings, their snorts, the splinters of the waves. And growing out of morning mists, the ghosts of night form silhouettes along the ridge, a dun to chestnuts and a bay, a shy colt stares and shivers, a trembling like fine feathers in a sudden breeze around the hooves of heavy horses, and the dam with full to foot steadies herself to find her bearings, her ears antennae of attention. Put your hand towards her head collar, whispering your ohs and woe, oh the boy and oh the girl. Close your eyes and lean your head towards her quiet head, the way the old grey mare, hearing that her hero joined the sleep of death, spread her mane across his breast and began to wail and weep. In the introduction, you heard also of my reverence for Wendell Berry, the Kentucky writer and farmer, writer of poems, essays, novels, um, a man that I'm fortunate enough to become a friend of, I hope. And, uh, I remember once after some correspondence and various friends that we had in common put us in touch, he invited me to visit him in Kentucky and I gladly accepted and followed the instructions towards his place. I flew to Kentucky, I hired a car, I was driving out there, and I realized that as I approached the house, I just became incredibly nervous. And I thought, this man is too good for me, and it's going to be a disaster. And I went up to the door and knocked nervously, and Tanya, his wife, came out, and uh, to prolong the suspense and the strain of this, she said, Wendell's not here. He's down in the barn. Would you like to go down? And I went down, and I saw him. He stood up. He was milking a cow. And he said, she's a mighty splashy shitter. <laughs> the first words he said to me, and I thought, I thought, we'll get along just fine. So I mention that because it sneaks into this poem, which is called A Refrain, and maybe with uh, the chaos caused by the grumblings of the earth at the moment, uh, it, it's, it's not inappropriate to mention some of the man-made shadows that were put into the sky as well at another time. A Refrain. Their names a loveliness, a darling word, though each of them's a splashy shitter, marling the ground beneath their sudden roost. Each of them's one of a flock you'd count that used to be uncountable, that dimmed the sun, and now you watch mount a sycamore and make of it a vocal cord 
until they wheel away affrighted or simply of their own accord. A whim, a whoosh, a whirr. The rowing wings of, say, a crow stay solid. Theirs blur. Then silence. Their one part chatter, two parts cackle. Betray the part their minor bird or, if you like, southern grackle. Working their way, wings and grey mantle, a fletch of petrol stains, till some of them fetch up in the poisoned lands of new estates, old farms, their pesticides, while others stall among the smoke alarms of the oil fields on fire along their flight paths through the flashpoints of the Tigris and Euphrates, noon skies as black as night. Iridescent scavengers, they'd come and go across your life like that apostle's shadow, healing all it brushed against. They came and went for years, a clockwork swipe across September, and now one reappears, part of a warbling quarrel. We say, where have you been, starling? What tales you'd have, our pleas and prayers for you are sing. There have been references earlier today to a translation I undertook and got underway with fully in the house on North Blackfriar Street in the, in the course of the spring of 2000. My translation of uh, George, uh, Virgil's gorgeous poem of people trying to settle themselves after a civil war in uh, ancient Italy. And this was something I was working on, this part from the end of book one, I was working on uh, in the spring of 2003, we returned to it at a time when in total disregard of a UN resolution there was a rush to war east of here. And 2,000 years later, you wonder what changed. In short, whatever's, whatever evening's bringing on, whence winds propel fair weather clouds, and what wet southerlies portend, the sun will advance warning signs. Who dare to question the sun's word. For it is he once more who forestalls troubles, hidden but at hand, of conflicts festering out of sight. And it was he who felt for Rome that time that Caesar fell and veiled his gleaming head in gloom so dark the infidels began to fear that night would last forever. The skies of Germany resounded with the din of war. Weird stirrings caused the Alps to tremble. What's more, in quiet groves, a voice was heard by many peoples, a monstrous voice, and pallid specters loomed through the dead of night, and, dare I say it, cattle spoke. The rivers ground to a halt, gaping holes appeared, and in the sanctuary, carved ivories began to weep 
the tears of mourning and bronzes to perspire. The Po, King River, swept away in raging rushes across the open plains, whole plantations, cattle and their stalls, swept all away. That was a time when entrails carefully scrutinized showed nothing but the worst, and wellsprings sprouted blood all day, and hill towns howled all night with wolves. Nothing surer than the time will come when, in those fields, a farmer plowing will unearth rough and rusted javelins, and hear his heavy hoe echo on the sides of empty helmets, and stare in open-eyed amazement at the bones of heroes he's just happened on. Stand back. Don't block the way of this young one who comes to save a world in ruins. For right and wrong are mixed up here. There's so much warring everywhere. Evil has so many faces, and there is no regard for the labors of the plow. Bereft of farmers, fields have run to a riot of weeds. Look here, the east is up in arms. Look there, hostilities in Germany. Neighboring cities renege on what they pledged and launch attacks. The whole world's at loggerheads, a blasphemous battle. As when, right from the ready, steady, go, chariot to Chariots quicken on a track until the driver hasn't a hope of holding the reins and he's carried away by a team that pays heed to nothing, wildly away and no control. I'd like to read a couple of new poems. Um, the first of them is called A Summer Flood. And it's a record of feelings, feelings often of helplessness when a daughter, 16, 17, is faced with all of those troubles that assail a young one. And you wish you had that magic wand and you know you haven't and must stand there and hope to be a help if and when you can be. A summer flood. Again, I went out to the new wood because at times as these, it is a true good to be alone among the trees I planted and transplanted and an ease among steadfast companions to be one who believes that answers can emerge in leaves. There was disquiet in the house, a whirlwind in the ways and days of our most lovely girl. They stroked her like water, that is, everywhere. The worries and the woes, first deaths, her teenage tragedies. How live two lives of here and there, wherever there may be? May she pause, I make my prayer, like salmon in the estuary, our daughter, acclimatizing to fresh water, 
en route towards a stay in gravelly mud and waiting for a summer flood to tide them over. Now contrails scratch the sky, but by a buttercup, the wonder of a butterfly. And then what had been leafage in the night began to ruffle feathers, ready to take flight. And birdsong happened for me, no, for us all, solo first, then in chorus. It's a short poem called An Overlook. It's a poem written in the last few weeks, contemplating the crows, the jackdaws, um, and the rooks heading eastwards in the evening, back home from their feeding grounds to the roosts. They have ruffled the embers of evening and flap from its flames. They come like clockwork, minutes later every eventide, a loud returning that proclaims the row of limes in which they pause, en route to roosting in the rookery, a place of rest. They sketch black scripture in the sky. They watch from trees where they don't nest. These pairs and threes, tens and dozens making thousands, while I, intent on praise and mesmerized, wonder what, as they fly by, they might be, and realize they are the days. Perhaps two more poems. Um, maybe there's a companion piece to A Summer Flood. Um, a poem called Firstborn. Watching the hardiness of snowdrops this winter coming and kind of beaten by snow and hard frosts and coming again and staying. The first brightness, if you like, of the year and the presagers of the spring that Jim has been mentioning. First born. They have stored the seeds of light to flourish in the year's early surprise as white clusters of snowbells, votive fruit dangling from green stems around the withering root of our century sycamore. There each head droops, cowed by any frost, but huddled in plumped companies, these shy troops marshal to surmount the force of winter from spring quarters, their annual unfailing fount. Fair maids of February, Bridesmaids of Candlemas, day stars in the sky of now, their mute accolades 
assert themselves in milk tears or in pearls of joy. Now I lie awake at night and fret about the boy, the life in store for him, his generation, notwithstanding their capacities, far from the land, adrift in distant cities, quiet desolation. For the years you learn don't come alone. They bear their load of apprehension, ache and loss, the time of our lives chaperone. Though lit they be by this pure alchemy, for what once was first, first love, first death, first born, will always be. And let me finish, please, with a poem. Um, and before I read it, I want to say that I've no doubt Sam and Chelsea, when they come, will assert Seamus's credentials as a great poet. To that, I'd like to add that he has been a great friend and that I have come to know that he is a great man. Thank you for listening. I think this is the third time that I've come back to uh, sort of mark Jim Murphy's retirement. <laughs> I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. Gate. There's no track of a hedge, no trace of a fence. In the middle of a field, an iron gate, and no evidence of path or passage. It clings to rusty hinges on chiseled stone. It hardly infringes on the course of stock. For cattle, a pair of scratching posts. For the colt and chestnut mare, a nuzzling place where you pause and again you contemplate in the middle of open grazing your fate by a gate that stops nothing and points nowhere. Say for a moment the field is your life and you come to a gate at the center of it. What then? Then you pause and open it and enter. Thank you very much. Derry on April 13, 1939, Seamus Heaney in name alone has come to represent 
the continued tradition of the Irish hero poet. After attending Anahorish Primary School, 12-year-old Heaney was awarded a scholarship to attend St. Columns College, a boarding school 40 miles from home, and it was there that he learned Latin and Irish. As an undergraduate at Queen's University Belfast, he studied English language and literature and saw his first poems published in student magazines. Within 10 years of graduation, Heaney's writing appeared in the Irish Digest, the Irish Times, and the Kilkenny Magazine, but it was his three poems in New Statesman in 1964 that caught the attention of Faber and Faber, who published Heaney's first collection, Death of a Naturalist, in 1966. In this same year, he was appointed lecturer at Queen's University and held and head of the poetry workshop known as The Group, through which he met and worked with such poets as Paul Muldoon, Maeve McGuckian, Michael Longley, and Derek Mahon, to name a few. Over the course of his prolific and admired writing career, Mr. Heaney has taught at Trinity College Dublin, the University of California, Berkeley, and Harvard University, where he served as Boylston Professor of Rhetoric and Oratory and the Emerson Poet in Residence. In 1995, Mr. Heaney joined the ranks of William Butler Yeats, George Bernard Shaw, and Samuel Beckett in being awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. To date, Mr. Heaney has published more than a dozen collections of poetry, most recently District and Circle in 2006, which was named one of the Times London's 100 Best Books of the Decade and awarded the T.S. Eliot Prize in Britain. He's also the author of four collections of prose, two plays, and 11 translations, notably Beowulf, and Queen University's Library and Center for Poetry each bear his name. Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney by Dennis O'Driscoll was published in 2008. Heaney's new book of poetry, Human Chain, will be published later this year. In the 1970s, Robert Lowell called Seamus Heaney the best Irish poet since Yeats. In the mid-90s, Richard Tillinghast wrote in the New York Times that anyone who reads poetry has reason to rejoice at living in the age when Seamus Heaney is writing. Heaney's illustrious career spans decades, pages, and lines. He is a poet of the earth, opening the ground of Ireland, Irish culture, and history to his readers. His poems are at once eloquent and plain speaking, capturing readers with their vivid images and stark language. With a pen that rests snug as a gun, Seamus Heaney transports his audience to a wild landscape and a complicated people. His writing is political, pastoral, and passionate. It also acknowledges its own separation from the land. As former British poet laureate Andrew Motion said in The Guardian in 2006, reviewing District and Circle, Heaney remains interested in the numinous and the transcendent, but the extraordinary is implicated in the ordinary and vice versa. It is no wonder that a poet of such moral force, lyric beauty, and penetrating eye has been honored with the Nobel Prize in Literature. In his 1995 speech accepting the award, Mr. Heaney remarked that he wants a poetry that satisfies the contradictory needs which consciousness experiences at a time of extreme crisis, the need on the one hand for a truth-telling that will be hard and retributive, and on the other hand, the need not to harden the mind to a point where it denies its own yearnings for sweetness and trust. 
Indeed, Mr. Heaney's lifetime of work encompasses this important vision for what poetry is and can do. And so without further delay, I introduce to you one of the great poets of our time, Mr. Seamus Heaney. for me to be here with Peter on this occasion, this 10th anniversary of the Heimboldt Professorship, to be here with the Heimboldts, to be here with Peter, to be here with Jim on his uh, third retirement, <laughs> no matter. It's uh, the 10th anniversary of the Heimboldt, but uh, it's the 40th anniversary of the Gallery Press that Peter has been heading up for all those decades. It's also the 39th, I think, anniversary this uh, December when Peter came with a broadside for me to sign in Belfast, came, came from Dublin uh, to where Mary and I were in the house in, in, in Belfast at that stage. So it's a great happiness to be, to be here. Uh, and to have that tribute he paid. Yeats, W.B. Yeats, great poet, full of, full of quotations that T.S. Eliot once said about his poem, The Wasteland. Uh, Yeats praised his friends, he said, uh, of one of them uh, being close companion for many a year, part of my mind and life, as it were. And that is true of Peter and of many people here in this audience. The trip back to Villanova reminded me the welcome that I've had in colleges from writers in this district uh, from early 70s, from many, many of the colleges and universities. So there's a great sense of hospitality. Uh, I thought I might just uh, start with I will read a poem or two, all right, but I, I'm thinking of, of a, hundredth, a hundredth anniversary party that I attended, Mary and myself, many years ago. The hundredth anniversary of the birth of T.S. Eliot in uh, 1988, it was, in London, in Lloyd's Bank. Uh, T.S. Eliot uh, was given not only a party on his 100th birthday by Lloyds Bank, but a nervous breakdown in the 1920s. So he had overworking uh, himself there. I mean, there were other factors in it, but that definitely was part of it. Anyway, uh, Sir Geoffrey Mossman was the chairman of the bank when we were there for the party. And he, Mrs. Elliot was there too, and so on. We said, well, of course, he said, truly, he said, uh, Elliot wasn't the only great poet to work for Lloyd's Bank. He said, uh, Welsh poet Vernon Watkins also worked for Lloyd's Bank, he said. Vernon worked in Swansea in Wales, refused all promotion in order to devote himself entirely to his poetry. But, he said, Vernon was a branch man. Eliot was very much head office, he said. <laughs> Like Peter Fallon, Eliot was a poet and a publisher. 
And the great thing about Peter is, as publisher, he has head office. As poet, he retains his secret, individual, source, life, north of Dublin, just as Frost said, north of Boston. And uh, the, the work comes from there. He is the true farmer poet, has worked on the farm. I want to begin with a poem that Jim mentioned earlier, uh, not in this company, but to me, a poem called Digging, which, uh, which is the first poem in my first book. And it goes like this. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests, snug as a gun. Under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground. My father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug. The shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. My God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head. But I have no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pen rests. I'll dig with it. The country where I grew up, uh, the culture I grew up in, was mostly agriculture country. And uh, work was thought of as physical work. If you're upstairs uh, reading a book, you couldn't say, but I'm working. <laughs> uh, so, so there's always deep down somewhere in myself a need to defend the activity. And uh, so I was delighted to find a poem in praise of pen work by a 12th century scribe. Uh, it goes, Eskich moch grob on scriving. My hand is tired from pen work. So if your hand's tired, you must have been working. You know, so. <laughs> But it's a very good little short poem, 12 lines in the original Irish, 12 lines in my translation, so you're safe enough. And it, it goes like this. My hand is cramped from pen work. My quill has a tapered point. Its bird mouth issues a blue-dark beetle sparkle of ink. Wisdom keeps welling in streams from my fine-drawn, sallow hand, river run on the vellum of ink from green-skinned holly. My small, runny pen keeps going through books, through thick and thin, to enrich the scholar's holdings, pen work that cramps my hand. 
I got my first fountain pen the first day I went to secondary school, to boarding school in Derry. It was mentioned to Columns College. Colum Kill is supposed to have written a poem about the, the, the pen. It was actually written, the pen work. It was written by a, by a poet in the 11th, 12th century, uh, five or six centuries after Colum Kill lived. But Colum Kill was a famous scribe. I went to St. Columns College. I got my first pen that, that, that evening before I went in, before I said goodbye to my parents. So this poem is um, called The Conway Stewart. But I, I have to dedicate uh, this poem to uh, a friend from this town who made me a gift of a mighty pen here about, uh, well, what, 30 years ago. Uh, Bill Roberts gave me a much more distinguished make of pen, a Mont Blanc, a mighty creature. And it, I don't bring it with me anywhere. It, it stays in state on my desk at home. <laughs> So, Bill, thanks, thanks a lot. This, this is... I don't know what, what that is. Uh, this is from a new book which was mentioned. Uh, so it's, uh, it's called The Conway Stewart. Some of you may never have used a fountain pen. I know that that's the way the world is going, but this requires some familiarity with the ancient models to, to, to appreciate it. Quite short, the Conway Stewart. Medium, 14 carat nib. Three gold bands on the clip-on screw top. In the mottled barrel, a spatulate thin pump action lever the shopkeeper demonstrated the nib uncapped, treating it to its first deep snorkel in a newly opened ink bottle. Guttery, snottery, letting it rest then at an angle to ingest, giving us time to look together and away from our parting due that evening to my long hand dear to them next day. From that college, I was called away unexpectedly two years later because of an accident that had happened at home. And this is a poem called Midterm Breaks in my first book also, very direct. Grateful to the great poet Robert Frost because I had read a poem of his called Out Out, one of the first poems that meant something to me about an accident in a farmyard, sudden death of a child who lost his hand in a, in a uh, circular saw. This was a different accident. Midterm break. I sat all morning in the college sick bay, counting bells, nailing classes to a close. At two o'clock, our neighbors drove me home. In the porch, I met my father crying. He had always taken funerals in his stride. And big Jim Evans, saying it was a hard blow. The baby cooed and laughed and rocked the pram when I came in, and I was embarrassed by old men standing up to shake my hand and tell me they were sorry for my trouble. Whispers informed strangers I was the eldest, away at school, as my mother held my hand in hers 
and coughed out angry, tearless sighs. At 10 o'clock, the ambulance arrived with the corpse, stanched and bandaged by the nurses. Next morning, I went up into the room. Snowdrops and candles soothed the bedside. I saw him for the first time in six weeks, paler now. Wearing a poppy bruise on his left temple, he lay in the four-foot box as in his cot. No gaudy scars. The bumper knocked him clear. A four-foot box. A foot for every year. Two years, well, at the end of my first term in St. Columns, I came home on the bus to a place called Marafelt, where the was the main hub of our little uh, uh, transport system. The buses came to Marafelt and took off from Marafelt. And uh, by, by accident, when I arrived on the private bus from school, I found my mother in the waiting room of the, of the service bus, as we call it. What a wonderful coincidence. As the years went on, of course, I realized she had known that I'd be arriving. And she just happened to be in the waiting room of, of the bus station. And she had a little time with me because once we got home, there were, by that stage, I'm sure, six or seven more in the house. So, so she had some time with me on, on, on her own. I, I realized this much later. Much, much, much later again, that waiting room, that bus station, was blown up by a bomb, a proxy bomb. So. Uh, this is a poem with a most unromantic title. It's called Two Lorries. And it was mentioned to me by someone this afternoon who uh, studied it in class here. And uh, the word Marafelt recurs in it. And in fact, lots of words recur uh, in it because it's, it's what they call a sistina. But it begins with a lorry delivering coal to, that I well remember to our house in the 1940s. And then it fast forwards to the 1980s to this uh, bomb delivery. And it was written after my mother had died. So that is the context. It's a poem out of our long years of troubles in the northern of Ireland. Two lorries. It's raining on black coal and warm wet ashes. There are tire marks in the yard. Agnew's old lorry has all its cribs down, and Agnew the coal man with his Belfast accents sweet-talking my mother. Would she ever go to a film in Marafelt? But it's raining, and he still has half the load to deliver further on. This time the load our coal came from was silk black, so the ashes will be the silkiest white. The Marafelt via Tombridge bus goes by. The half-stripped lorry with its emptied, folded coal bags moves my mother. The tasty ways of a leather-aproned coal man. And films, no less. The conceit of a coal man. She goes back in and gets out the black lead and emery paper, this 1940s mother, all business round her stove, half-wiping ashes, <coughs> half ashes with a backhand from her cheek, as the bolted lorry gets revved and turned and heads for Marafelt and the last delivery. 
Oh, Margafelt. Oh, dream of red plush and a city coal man. As time fasts forwards and a different lorry groans into shot up Broad Street with a payload that will blow the bus station to dust and ashes. After that happened, I had a vision of my mother, a revenant on the bench where I would meet her in that coal-floored waiting room in Marafelt, her shopping bags full up with shoveled ashes. Death walked out past her like a dust-faced coal man refolding body bags, plying his load empty upon empty in a flurry of moats and engine revs. But which lorry was it now? Young Agnews or that other heavier, deadlier one set to explode in a time beyond her time in Marafelt. So tally bags and sweet talk darkness, Coleman. Listen to the rain spit in new ashes as you load, as you heft a load of dust that was Marafelt. Then reappear from your lorry as my mother's dreamboat, Coleman, filmed in silk white ashes. This is a poem called St. Kevin and the Blackbird. Irish poetry from the beginning, from the 8th, 9th century on, is full of poems about blackbirds. They're full of life. Their gold beak is praised. Their quickness in the hedge, and so on. But this is a story told by a Norman who came to Ireland in the 12th century. He was a bishop who accompanied the Norman conquerors of the country. His name he was Gerald from Wales, Geraldus Cambrensis. And like, uh, like those who accompany invaders and write their reports, he said, basically these people needed to be conquered, you know, because... <laughs> uh, what would they know about running a country? I mean, they needed... Uh, well, they didn't need democracy, they needed a dose of feudalism, so, <laughs> so they got it. But, but Geraldus I mean, explains what their inadequacies, but he also tells some wonderful stories about what was going on in Ireland. And this is one of them, about St. Kevin and the Blackbird. These early monastic uh, monks, the saints, prayed in the shape of the cross because they would represent the cross, but also because it would be more painful and more penitential and more grace would be gained, presumably, by suffering like this. So this is about St. Kevin and the Blackbird. And then there was St. Kevin and the Blackbird. The saint is kneeling, arms stretched out inside his cell. But the cell is narrow, so one turned up palm is out the window, stiff as a crossbeam. When a blackbird lands, and lays in it and settles down to nest. <laughs> Kevin feels the warm eggs, the small breast, the tucked neat head and claws, and finding himself linked into the network of eternal life is moved to pity. Now he must hold his hand like a branch <coughs> out in the sun and rain for weeks until the young are hatched and fledged and flown. And since the whole thing's imagined anyhow, imagine being Kevin. Which is he? Self-forgetful or in agony all the time, 
from the neck on out down through his hurting forearms? Are his fingers sleeping? Does he still feel his knees? Or has the shut-eyed blank of under-earth crept up through him? Is there distance in his head? Alone and mirrored clear in love's deep river, to labour and not to seek reward, he prays. A prayer his body makes entirely, for he has forgotten self, forgotten bird, and on the riverbank, forgotten the river's name. I added as best I could to the genre of blackbird poems and wrote a poem called The Blackbird of Glanmore, which is a, a blackbird that appears in this beautiful little quiet cottage uh, we have in County Wicklow, where I have done a lot of writing. And in this poem, is a poem really with a strong sense of mortality in it. It goes back to that moment when the child, uh, a moment of loss of the, the young brother. But it also goes back to something an old neighbour said at that time to my mother after the accident. She, she, she was, belonged to the old world, a superstitious old lady, and she saw meaning in everything that happened, in signs, like Virgil's uh, account in, in, in the Georgics that Peter read there. But she saw this bird on the shed roof and it sat there for a couple of three days. And she said to my mother afterwards, uh, I, that bird that was sitting there before Christopher's accident, she said, I never liked that. Never liked that. <laughs> so so there are other, there's another thing in this. There's a quotation from a translation I did of uh, a play by Sophocles called Philoctetes. And Philoctetes is suffering great pain at one point and he says I want a way to the house of death to my father so this is the blackbird of Glenmore on the grass when I arrive filling the stillness with life but ready to scare off at the very first wrong move in the ivy when I leave it's you blackbird I love I park pause Take heed. Breathe. Just breathe and sit. And lines I once translated come back. I want a way to the house of death, to my father under the low clay roof. And I think of one gone to him, a little stillness dancer, haunter son, lost brother, cavorting through the yard. So glad to see me home, my homesick first term over. And think of a neighbor's words long after the accident. Yon bird on the shed roof, up on the ridge for weeks. I said nothing at the time, but I never liked yon bird. The automatic lock clunked shut. The blackbird's panic is short-lived. For a second, I have a bird's eye view of myself a shadow on raked gravel in front of my house of life. Hedgehog, I am absolute for you. You're ready talk back. You're each standoffish comeback. You're picky, nervy, gold beak. On the grass when I arrive. In the ivy when I leave. Just read. Um, Two more poems. They're from this uh, book 
that my introducers mentioned, Human Chain. And the book is dedicated to two couples, four very dear friends, uh, uh, who were great assistants to me at one particular moment in, in my life, but her lifelong friends. Two of them being Peter and his wife Jean. They were present in 2006 when I had a, a minor stroke and I needed a great deal of help to get downstairs and a great deal of help to be looked after. And I was looked after fine, thanks to their help, and services came and I was well and truly uh, miraculously saved and fresh as paint after that. But, but I, I couldn't help thinking afterwards of the very beautiful story in the New Testament of the man sick of the palsy who wants to get in to Christ to his healing. And there's a big crowd around him. It's like a Peter Fallon poetry reading in a crowd around everybody. <laughs> and uh, they can't get in. They can't get in to the... Uh, uh, to the saviour, to the healer. So they take, they take the, the man upstairs, up to the roof, they take off the tiles and they lower him down. And uh, I was carried downstairs uh, on that morning by friends and uh, I realised then, of course the saviour, the healer were important. Of course the miracle of the man was important. But central to all this, were the friends who carried him in. So this poem is called Miracle. And it's short. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, they ache and stoop, deep locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable, and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid out ropes to cool, their slight lightheadedness and incredulity to pass those ones who had known him all along. A copy of Treasure Island, illustrated by Wyeth. One of my favorite, anybody's favorite book, Treasure Island. So this, this poem uh, in, involves a scene from Treasure Island uh, from the end of the book where Jim Hawkins is assailed by the villainous Israel Hands, who's come with a knife between his teeth up the shrouds to get Jim up the masthead. He has no way of escaping. So he has to shoot Israel Hands. <laughs> uh, I saw, read this, never forgot that scene, of course. And then years, I mean, well, just a few years after I read it at school, maybe, maybe a year or two, I saw the, the movie, I think Robert Newton was playing uh, Long John Silver and so on. And I was in my grandfather's house at the time, I came back to my grandfather's house, and my grandfather made a mistake, which I never forgot. He, he, got, he got Israel Hans' name wrong, he called him Isaac Hans. He said, he said, it was Isaac in it, it was Isaac Hans in it. 
I thought, my God, imagine mis mista mistaking that. <laughs> so this, this, this poem is called In the Attic. And uh, it's uh, got all kinds of sea imagery. And uh, I, 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 I have a writing place in my own attic. And we had this tree, that, a birch tree that grew up to wave in front of the uh, skylight. So this, this is a poem called In the Attic. And I'll close with that with great gratitude and great sense of uh, celebration here this evening for all people and all kinds of pen pals and pen men. Uh, I think you could think of the, the writers who have been the ten professors as pen pals in Irish writing. Anyway, in the attic. Like Jim Hawkins, aloft in the cross trees of Hispaniola, nothing underneath them but still green water and clean bottom sand. The ship aground, the canted mast far out above a seafloor where striped fish pass in shoals. And when they've passed, the face of Israel hands that rose in the shrouds before Jim shot him dead appears to rise again. But he was dead enough, the story says, being both shot and drowned. <laughs> a birch tree planted 20 years ago comes between the Irish Sea and me, a boy ship-shaped in the crow's nest of a life, airbrushed to and fro, wind-drunk, braced by all that's strumming up from keel to masthead, rubbing his eyes to believe them, and this most buoyant, billowy, top-gallant birch. Ghost-footing what was then the terra firma of hallway linoleum, grandfather now appears, his voice a waver like the draft-prone screen they'd set up in the club rooms earlier for the matinee I'd just come back from. And Isaac Hans, he says, was Isaac in it? His memory of the name, a waver too. His mistake, perpetual, once and for all, like the single splash when Israel's body fell. As I age and blank on names, as my uncertainty on stairs is more and more the lightheadedness of a cabin boy's first time in the rigging, as the memorable bottoms out into the irretrievable. It's not that I can't imagine still that slight untoward rupture and world tilt as a wind freshened and the anchor weighed. Thank you very much. We'll get, we'll get Peter up. Peter. I think we'll get Peter up. forgive me uh, for a slight detour in the program. Um, I don't mean in any way to try to steal the last word from Seamus. <laughs> but it's important that this enters the air of this evening. 
as you've heard, and it's been properly established and, and, and proper thanks have been given, I think, for it, through the beneficence of Charlie Heimbold and his family, the way for a number of Irish writers to come here was prepared. Through the good welcome and care of Jim Murphy and his colleagues, and we must say of Cathy, that way was guaranteed to be good. Those breakfasts at the farmer's market, those excursions to Gennardi's, those research excursions to Golifty's and <laughs> Annie's, and I could go on. The experiences for various writers in various genres and often of their families was rich and rewarding. And now, as a small gesture of appreciation for Jim's contribution to the pleasures and privileges of our being here, and as a minusculum of gratitude on the eve of his retirement, I tracked down each of the holders of the chair and a handful of friends, friends like Seamus, Paul Muldoon, and Derek Mahan, and asked them to inscribe something into a book for Jim. And that sum of some things, a token of respect and the bonus of friendship from his peers, and on behalf, too, of all the generations of students for whose well-being he has shown such concern, I would like now to ask Seamus to present this book of manuscripts with gratitude and love. To Jim. Said of Maud Gone. <laughs> Many things. <laughs> but he said, she is foremost of those I would hear praised. So we can change the gender of the first pronoun and say, he is foremost of those we would hear praised. Um, for Murray and myself to be here on this occasion for Jim and Kathy and to be with Peter and to be doing it in the presence of the Heimbolds and with all the pen pals in this book. So uh, Jim has been, again to quote Yates, a hearer and heartener of the work and the work continues. It never ends. It keeps going. Bless you. escape unscathed. <laughs> this is beautiful. Thanks very much. And uh, seeing all these names in here, um, I realize how many pen pals I do have. And it makes me even more sure that my work, my career hasn't been, as I said a little earlier, in 
upstairs did not work at all. Because um, Yates, when he went to the, if you know Yates' poem, The Municipal Gallery Revisited, he goes into the gallery and he looks at all the paintings. I'm looking at all the, all the poems and the names. And uh, he says, um, Yates said, I think not where man's glory most begins and ends, but say my glory was I had such friends. So I've been blessed, and thank you all very much.